Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. What did the fish have to pay to get past the coral reef? A toll. My guest today is world-renowned shark researcher Dr. Andrew Chin. Growing up in Metropolis, Singapore, Andrew developed a love and fascination for the ocean at a young age. In fact, one of his favorite Christmases was when he received buckets of aquarium fish as presents. Andrew has worked as a team member for the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, conducting coral reef surveys and tagging hammerhead sharks before making the leap back into academia. In this episode, Andrew shares his winding path filled with leaps of faith, including leaving a steady, paying, awesome job to follow his dream. Andrew also shares his favorite sea creature, resembling the motorcycle gang of the sea, and shares important advice for anyone who is currently figuring out their career. Please enjoy. Andrew, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm excited to have you on today. Yeah, no, thanks, Cara. It's a great opportunity. So thank you as well. Yeah. So with you, I, I mean, your career has been amazing to read through and, and research a bit because you've done a lot and a lot in the Great Barrier Reef. But you got your start actually outside of Australia with marine biology. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to become a marine biologist? Oh, look. <laughs> okay. It's kind of cliche. Um, so I grew up, it is, um, I grew up in a big city in Southeast Asia, Singapore. So that's where I was born and raised. Um, and if you have been to Singapore, you know, it is not a, or oh, the tourism promotion board's not going to like this, but it's not this gin clear water like it is in other parts. It's, it's pretty muddy and green and, you know, it's the world's busiest, well, one of the world's busiest ports. Um, so it was not a marine biology paradise, but for some reason, and I, I honestly don't know how, I just got hooked at school and was reading Jacques Cousteau books and dive magazines. And then, and then when I was a teenager, I went on a trip to an island called Tioman um, and got in the water the first time I was in clear tropical water on a reef. Um, and I was, you know, that was it. I was lost. Um, that was a transformative experience. And I was just like, uh, okay, I know what I want to be. Um, and also that was the first time I saw a shark, a black tip reef shark. And, Mm. you know, there was no fear. There was no apprehension. There was just complete, completely being mesmerized by this animal as it moved through the water, like just in perfect balance. And I was just like, whoa, that's all right. I'm done. I'm not going to become a banker, <laughs> much, <laughs> much to the disappointment of my dad. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm going to join the ranks of um, um, a journeyman 
uh, marine biologists scraping out a living doing what they love. And that, yeah, that was it pretty much. Incredible. So sharks had your attention from the first black tip that you ever saw. Yeah, sharks and fish. Um, you know, I had fish, like the thing I drove my mom crazy. I had so many fish tanks when I was a kid. And, you know, <laughs> hat tip to my parents. They indulged me, right? Um, I remember one of my favorite Christmases um, was I woke up and my mom and my sisters had gone to the aquarium shop and my present was outside. It was just buckets of aquarium fish. And like, that was like the best Christmas present or I'd ever received fish in buckets. It was amazing. <laughs> fish in buckets. Now, were these freshwater or saltwater aquariums? All, all freshwater. Um, okay. Saltwater, saltwater is a lot more intense than aquariums, Exactly. So intense. I Even now, it's like, well, actually, now I'm so busy, I don't even think I'd feel confident looking after a goldfish. But anyway, <laughs> times change. Times have changed. Oh, I love it. That's a great Christmas gift. Here's a bunch of fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when when we originally chatted, you mentioned that you tagged hammerheads on the Great Barrier Reef. Yep. And that is an incredible opportunity. I want to know more about kind of how that came about and what or what your research found while you're tagging. And then what methods do you use to even catch a big oh. hammerhead shark and tag it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um I'll preface this um, this bit of the discussion by saying I used to love hammerhead sharks, and now that I try <laughs> to go out and you know, I've, yeah, I used to love hammerheads. Now I look at them with a mixture of <laughs> anyway. I'd be happy not to work on hammerhead sharks ever again. Um, so, look, hammerheads have got some conservation problems. Um, firstly, just by the shape of their hammer, uh, it makes them really easily enmeshed in in gill nets. Um, mm-hmm. And the second thing is they're physiologically speaking, they're kind of like a, a highly tuned performance vehicle, right? Um, they redline really easily and they're great performers, but they stress out and die really easily as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got two things working against them. They get captured easily. And even if you try to release them alive, um, they stress out and die very, very quickly. So, you know, there's a lot of concern around about hammerhead populations um, around the world. So this project was trying to look at connectivity between different parts of Northern Australia and Southeast Asia. So essentially our hammerheads stocks shared between Australia, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia. Um, And we do that using satellite tags. So the goal of this project Um, There were three parts. My part was the satellite tagging part. There was someone else doing genetics and then someone else doing um, parasites. You bring all those three bits of information together and, you know, you can sort of figure out how hammerheads um, are moving. Um, Have have you done any tagging, fish tagging or anything like that, Cara? I have. And you had the expensive, um, definitely more intensive aspect of that everybody else just had like a little bit of a needle prick and they were good to go right (laughs) yeah so i mean these um you know these tags are amazing technology um Mm -hmm. essentially once you get a tag on the animal it stays on there for you know however long you want Uh, you know we programmed ours for six months and it uses it records depth it records temperature and it records light and using those three variables it 
can kind of work out within a sort of 100 kilometer um, range, roughly where it is in the ocean. And then after six months or whatever it is, it pops up um, and mm -hmm. transmits all the data and you get the track of where the animal has been. That's the theory. Um, <laughs> each one of these tags, each one of these tags costs 5,000 US. Um, so literally it's like throwing $5,000 into the water um, and praying to the gods that you're going to get something out the back. Um, <laughs> so you asked, what did I learn? I learned number one, hammerheads. So hammerheads are super flexible, right? You know, they can turn around uh, and bite their tail. Um, so that's a, amazing engineering. It also means that they are really, really good at scraping tags off, mm. um, which is really annoying. And I was talking to some friends of mine, some colleagues in the Bahamas, Tristan Guttrich, um, and, you know, they have the same thing. Hammerheads scrape these things off, scrape off the tags, <laughs> which is really annoying. Um, so of all the tags we put out, uh, we only had three that lasted the full deployment of six months. Um, and all three, and, you know, getting the bits of data from the, all the other tags, um, it didn't show us what we expected. Okay. So wait, how many tags did you deploy? Ah, okay. So, um, we use, um, short, um, lines with about 10 hooks on them and mm -hmm. drum lines. And because hammerheads stress out so quickly, um, you've got to be on them. Um, you know, you basically sit on the gear. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, you, people say, oh, Australia is shark infested waters. You go out there and try catching hammerheads, you know, <laughs> you, you, you're spending thousands of dollars a day for a boat, you know, the crew's essentially working for free and you are fishing from sun, from dawn till dusk and into the night and you're not catching hammerheads. <laughs> you're catching tiger sharks. Oh yeah. If I was tagging tiger sharks, it would have been done. Be fantastic. It's a lot of effort going in fishing using these drum lines. Um, and once you've got a hammerhead on, it's basically um, all hands on deck. Um, you get to the animal, you secure it with a tail rope. Um, mm -hmm. There are various different ways people handle their sharks. So have you heard of tonic immobility? Yes, I have. Yeah. So I mean, for for the listeners, for the audience, yeah. for the audience um, that's um, sharks have got this uh, sort of quirk in their nervous system that if you put, put them upside down, they sort of chill out, um, which you really want a hammerhead to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you try and put them into tonic immobility as fast as possible so you can get a very quick assessment. Um, you know, we look at uh, the size, we look at the sex, um, we take a DNA sample, um, you know, for the DNA side of the project. Um, and then we put the tag in and you want that done in minutes so that you can release the animal in good condition. And, um, certainly, um, every animal we tagged survived. Um, so that was, that was, I was pretty happy with that. Mm -hmm. It was only that sometimes the tags didn't stay on anywhere near as long as we would have liked. Okay. So how many tags did you end up deploying? You said th only three made it the full six months, but how many was that in total? Yeah, I think we put out 24. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it gets a bit... It, I mean, science is very much a collaborative exercise. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I should know the exact number of tags that were put out. 20 um, plus and only three made it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's something like that, yeah. 
Okay. Hammerheads, I, I still sort of roll my eyes at the idea of hammerheads, but you know, I'll be honest, they are cool animals. But if someone else wants to go out there and tag them, that's fine. I'm happy to go out and help, but <laughs> I don't know if I'd do that again. So what were you said the results weren't what you expected? What did yes. you what were you expecting and then what did you find? So what we were expecting, I guess, is that there was going to be lots of long distant movements of these animals um, because, mm. you know, that's what we see in other areas for, you know, hammerheads moving, um, for example, from the Bahamas up to the east, up the east coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we found is that ours aren't. Um, in fact, one of the tags that we put out for six months, it popped up at pretty much exactly the same location where it was tagged. And <laughs> we know that the animal was moving around because the depth changed. Um, mm. And uh, we also use other tags, which give you a um, uh, position fix every time the fin breaks the surface. And mm-hmm. the data were consistent across you know, all the animals, um, they're just not moving that much. So we had very localized movement. Um, one of the reasons for that might be that, um, they were sort of, they were adults, but they were young adults and maybe they only start moving the bigger distances when they get to the really big size. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, unfortunately we didn't manage to catch any of those animals. To, to <laughs> <them>. <laughs> so a project for somebody else in the future. Yeah, Anybody's actually, <laughs> actually, a, a friend of mine is um, picking up, I think, where I left off, um, uh, a scientist called Adam Barnett, who's also at James Cook University here. Um, and yeah, he's, I've, I've given him my hammerhead tagging spots. And I'm like, good luck, buddy. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you're doing. Let me know how it works out. <laughs> and tell me a couple of stories while, while you're at it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I remember one trip where we were out for six days and the weather was miserable. Right. Um, And, you know, everyone, you know, I'm sure my mom and my family thinks I spend um, half my time with my feet up on a beach drinking pina coladas (laughs) under a coconut tree. You know, it's, it's not standing on a boat in driving rain in 30 plus knots with you know a crew that are seasick and you're feeling seasick and 14 hour days um and we just had one of those trips and it was it was it was grueling um and on the last haul so you know we were basically leaving that day we had one last drum line to pick up um and you know um, i had seen the whole trip was nothing but nurse sharks which are useless sharks i can't stand nurse sharks um and tiger sharks and i know i've offended everyone who loves nurse sharks out there but when you've got nurse sharks on a long line they're really really annoying to handle (laughs) um but um anyway um you know, it was nothing but nurse sharks and tiger sharks. And, um, we come up to this last drum line and one of my crew members, Sana, um, she just goes, Oh my God, I think it's a hammerhead. And I was so jaded and annoyed at this time. I just looked at her and said, that's not even effing funny. (laughs) And Jess was like, you know, don't mess with me, Sana. I'm not in this mood. Um, and she's like, no, I'm serious. And it turned out to be a hammerhead. 
and the only hammerhead of the trip. And it was, um, it actually, the hook, it had been swimming around the bait, but the hook had actually just lodged itself um, onto the front of the hammer. It wasn't even kind of dug in. It was just pure random. Like if we'd got there 10 seconds later or 30 seconds later, it might not have been on the hook. It was holy crap. It, so we managed to get it and rope it up because like I said, it wasn't hooked um, and got someone holding the pectoral fin, uh, the uh, big dorsal fin. We got a tag in and then let it go. But that was a, that was, I think my favorite memory of tagging. <laughs> yeah. Slogged so long for it. And we were so incredibly lucky to get it because, you know, like I said, if we'd come along 30 seconds later, it, may not have been there <laughs> that's an, it's intense I feel like that you know your efforts were rewarded it's nice when you get mm -hmm. out in the field and you have those terrible days but there's there was a reward at the end of it <laughs> there was a reward yeah yeah and you know it is you know when you look back and you, you sort of sit back in your comfortable office chair and you're not throwing up over the side you can look back and go oh yeah that was that was a lot of fun <laughs> yeah we are pretty lucky yeah, we're very lucky to get to do what we do. Absolutely. This was during your postdoc, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When did you start working for the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, which is a uh, yep. heck of an acronym? Is there like an actual, <laughs> actual way to like say that acronym? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a dog's breakfast, as we'd say in Australia. Uh, um, which doesn't really work, <laughs> but that's just what's used. Um yeah, so it's a dog's breakfast. Much, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a dog's breakfast. That's um, well, I mean, you've seen you've seen what dog food looks like. <laughs> um, anyway, there's there's some interesting colloquialisms in Australia. Um so yeah, look, I mean my parent my family was actually Australian. Um so when I finished high school, like I said, Marie, you know, Singapore was not a marine biologist's paradise. Um so I came back to Australia because I wanted to work as a marine biologist on the Great Barrett Reef. Um, and actually I remember as an undergraduate, you know, I, um, <laughs> we're talking about careers. Sometimes things don't work out the way you want. Um, mm -hmm. I was actually rejected from James Cook university. Um, so I didn't get in as an undergraduate for a technical, um, actually it wasn't that my grades were bad. It was actually a technical, uh, calculation problem with trying to get into the Australian system with an overseas after doing education from overseas. Okay. Anyway, so I'm standing at, um, in Townsville where JCU is, and I had gone to have a look at the campus and gone, man, I've, I've got to find a way to get here. Um, and then I also went to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. And I remember sitting across, I was staying in a backpackers lodge, um, across the river from the authority. And I was like, just going, I'm going to work there someday. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things, if, if you have intention and you're serious about something, you can make anything happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, luck is involved, but if, if you have intention and commitment to something, I think it's amazing what you can make happen mm -hmm. um, if you persist for long enough. Um, so did my degree at a not at another university, um, where did you end up getting your undergrad or your, yeah, your undergrad? Uh, at a, a, un a university in a small country town called 
Central Queensland University that did not have a marine biology program. Um, so you um, knew you wanted to be a marine biologist and you, and your mm-hmm. degree wasn't necessarily in marine biology. I want listeners to take note of that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I got a general degree in applied um, uh, applied science, uh, majoring in biology. Um, and, you know, I, I was... I guess, kind of really disappointed not to get into JCU. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, things happen for a reason. And, you know, fast forward, I'm now teaching <laughs> at JCU. So again, um, you know, it's a bit of persistence pays off, I think. Um, but yeah, anyway, so after I finished my undergrad, I went and worked in the tourism industry for a while, um, you know, get some diving experience. Um, so I worked on an island called Heron Island, which is one of the most beautiful places on the planet that I've ever been to. Hmm. Um, and then from there, I moved without a job or anything and just moved on faith um, to Townsville. Um, started volunteering at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Um, so much of this job is, is networking and, and being in the right place at the right time. So I just volunteered. I volunteered on another dive boat. Um, that used to do shark research in the Coral Sea called Undersea Explorer um, and started, managed to pick up some work at the aquarium because of my experience in the tourism industry as a guide. Mm-hmm. Um, I got work in the local aquarium here, which was the education arm for the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. So I kind of got in through the back door um, because I was on the books then, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then started meeting people. I actually met my boss at, <laughs> I actually met my boss, the person who ended up being my boss at the Marine Park Authority on the dive boat I was volunteering on, again, with my head over the side, throwing up, being <laughs> the seasickest I've ever been in my entire life. Um, and that, yeah, that was the first night that I met my future boss two years from now, <laughs> two years from then. So um, you you blew him away with your uh, amazing. Well, and this is this. I think this is a really important lesson. I mean, it, you know, again, it's a small community, mm-hmm. and you know, I had no idea that this person, David Wackenfeld, who's a good friend of mine, and is actually now the chief scientist of the Marine Park Authority. You know, I had no idea that Dave, two years later, would end up being on my interview panel and then <laughs> would be my boss for the next ten years. So, you know, if you get a volunteer gig, you got to take it seriously. You got to show up um, because you never know when the payoff is going to be. And as it was when I started working at the aquarium, I was like, oh, I know this guy. Oh, he was on the dive boat and he was working as a scientist for the Marine Park Authority. And, you know, it's like, well, I'm working. I've moved to Townsville. I'm working in the aquarium now. If anything comes up, let me know. And, um, yeah, that's the way it happened. That's incredible. It's a really great story and lesson of just kind of putting yourself out there. And also, you know, you have to, you have to put the effort in and show up in order to get yeah. the results that you want. Yeah. I mean, you know, you are always being judged. Um, if you're at a conference, you're at a student meeting, you're on social media, whatever it is, um, you know, some of those interactions you have with people can pay off years, years later. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, just be mindful, be mindful of the opportunities you might not realize are right in front of you. Absolutely. 
So while you were working for the Park Authority, you helped develop a citizen science program. Could you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about Eye on the Reef program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, citizen science um, essentially is uh, when you have members of the public or the community collecting data in a repeatable, systematic way um, or some way that can be verified uh, for a specific purpose, right? Um, so it's it's not just wandering around doing random stuff. It's It's actually people doing things that can be of specific use to science for specific reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Eye on the Reef program was an idea to um, try and engage the tourism industry with monitoring their own sites. Um, I mean, the reef is massive, you know, it's, it's thousands of reefs, hundreds of islands, um, you know, it's the size of Italy. Um, we can't be out there monitoring the whole thing. So if you can get tourism industry staff who are out there every day, you know, trained up so that they can notice, like, this is what the reef normally looks like. Oh, hold on. Something's going on here. We've got bleaching or we've got mortality or we've got algae outbreaks or something's happening with the fish. Mm-hmm. If we can train them up to do that, then we've got early warning and we can then bring in, um, you know, other teams to look, more specifically at the problem um and you know frankly some of the people who know best what's going on are the tourism operators and, and the people who are in the water every day mm-hmm. um because they're in the water every day and they're an amazing resource to use so the whole idea of the iron reef program was to basically form a network of tourism operators train them in collecting data and get them to collect data um, and then they could also use that, A, to keep their staff interested, keep their staff moving forward in career development, because um, staff retention in the industry can be a problem. Um, and then also it gives them um, uh, sort of environmental credentials. You know, we're, we're monitoring our site, we're looking after our site. Um, and then if you're talking to your clients on the boat, you've got, well, you know, we've been monitoring this site for three years and, you know, here's this fish that we see and, and you know, um, we know that at this month of the year, these things happen at our site. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's giving them uh, information that they can use for their own marketing and, and for interpreting the reef for their guests. That's wonderful. It's a win-win. And so all of this mm-hmm. is reported into a central database that the government's yep. able to use or the, the park authority is able yep. to use. Yep. So the eye on the reef, I mean, well, I, my involvement was pretty much the proof of concept. Um, since I've left the authority, uh, it's been taken over by um, some really passionate people, Fiona Merida and Chris Jones and um, Paul Groves, um, and they have taken it and expanded it. So there's now an app called the Sightings app, mm-hmm. uh, which people can use to just log random sightings like, you know, marine debris or uh, animal strandings or whales. We've got a white humpback whale um, called uh, Migaloo. Um, <laughs> And that's an Aboriginal name. Uh, basically, it means white fella. Okay. Um, so there's an albino humpback um, that's very, very popular that makes its annual migration up the East Coast into the Great Barrier Reef. Um, so, you know, the sightings app allows people oh, you know, to log their Migaloo sightings. Um, yeah, no, it's great. And, and it's a great way to engage the public. And all of that data in the sightings app goes into a centralized database. Uh, you know, as a shark scientist now, um, I use it 
Um, there's uh, some interesting spin-off projects that, you know, from sightings that we're considering mm. um, on some rare species. Um, and then the tourism data, like, you know, the weekly site reports that are still being done, that all goes into a database as well. It's amazing. Citizen science is truly powerful. We have a similar sounding program here in Florida. Uh, it's called CFAN Network. And one of the pillars programs of it is the Bleach Watch. So kind of going mm. out and having people look at coral reefs and like reporting, you know, if they see bleach coral or healthy coral out there. Um, but also part of the CFAN Network, it's also marine debris or any sick or stranded animals and stuff like that. So it's a, you know, you can't, you just, it's impossible to fund scientists and park rangers to be out there on every square inch of the ocean documenting all this. So it's wonderful to actually get public involved. And it's really important. You brought up uh, what some of the lesser known rays and projects, which kind of segues really nicely into your porcupine rays. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us a little porcupine bit about your rays. great porcupine hunt, porcupine ray hunt, and why it's so important? Yeah. Um, so this all started off, um, one of my jobs at the Marine Park Authority, um, was we had this program assessing the, you know, the vulnerability to the climate change of, sorry, of the Great Barrier Reef to climate change and, um, uh, some really, uh, talented colleagues and friends of mine, um, Terry Walker, Pete Kine, um, uh, Rory McCauley. Uh, and I, we got together and we formed like the sharp team. So we wrote the sharp chapter for that, that book. And w in that effort, we species by species worked out or predicted the vulnerability of each species of shark and ray on the great barrier to climate change. And the porcupine ray was one of the ones that floated to the top. Um, and I'll get to be honest. I mean, before I did that, I didn't even know what a porcupine ray was. Hmm. Um, and it came out as one of these species that we're worried about, um, largely because it seemed to be pretty rare, uh, very habitat attached to coral reef environments, um, and you know, highly dated. We just didn't know much about them. Um, and then when I found photos of these things, I was like, "Oh, that's a cool animal!" All right, these these rays are chunky. They're covered in short sort of uh, knobs and spikes. They're like they're like armored knights <laughs> roaming around on the bottom of the sea, you know, and while you've got these other whip rays and stuff, which are, you know, very dainty and they're very pretty, um, porcupine rays are just like the bikers of the red world, <laughs> right? Um, they don't even have tail spines. Okay. You know, other rays have the venomous spines. Um, um, these ones don't, and it's cause they just rely on their armor. And I was just, I was like, this is a really cool animal that I knew nothing about. Um, so I launched a citizen science project called the Great Porcupine Ray Hunt. Um, this is at JCU um, to try and get information on the distribution of where these things were, like where people seen porcupine rays. Um, and after a year, um, you know, we got some really interesting information about hotspots. So there seems to be a hotspot around Lady Elliot Island and Herod Island in the Southern Great Barrier Reef. Um, that's very useful because both of those islands just happen to have research stations on them. Um, there was a hotspot uh, up in Northern Australia um, where 
um, they're actually um, uh, hunted and used by Indigenous Australians. Um, the skins are quite valuable, so they're very well known up there. Uh, and then I actually had a conversation with a, a trawler skipper uh, from a shrimp boat, and um, he got some maps out and he showed me a couple of other hot spots. You know, these guys have basically been um, dragging nets um, in various, you know, where they're allowed to fish. Um, and he said, look, you know, all my experience and years at sea, this is where we find them. So that's cool. Um, and the fact that we had, you know, we, as scientists, we don't have the money or the time to just roam around the ocean looking for stuff, mm -hmm. right? You, you can't do that. You have to have a starting point. So the fact that this project showed us where porcupine rays could be reliably seen, that gave us enough information that we could put into a funding proposal. Um, so we actually got funding from the Save Our Seas Foundation mm -hmm. uh, to go out and try and tag these things and have a look at their residency. You know, we wanted to know how really, how, how much time do they spend on coral reefs? How dependent are they on coral reefs? Um, and yeah, the citizen science led, led to more research. That's incredible. And is this project still ongoing? Um, I'm still collecting the odd sighting. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not actively pursuing it now. Okay. Um, people, people know I'm interested in porcupine. Rays, so, <laughs> uh, you know, especially amongst the tourism industry, like I'm still getting photos of porcupine rays and I still log those all. Um, um, yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, I, I look into them further, but you know, there's only so much time and money. What were some of the findings? Yeah. So one of the findings I've got was it can be really, really hard to catch these things. Um, so we found them, um, again, the weather was horrible. Um, so I couldn't use the nets I wanted to use. Um, and we actually got our hands on a couple, but like I said, they're the bikers of the ray world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and we just, in the short amount of time, you know, we only had like funding for like a, a few days at the research station. So once we found where they were, trying to get tags into them just didn't work. Mm. Um, um, you know, if I went back again, um, I'd uh, basically bring different gear. Right. Um, and I know that now. Um, so the findings were, we kind of know where they are at a local scale. Um, oh, we got some interesting behavioral information. Mm. Um, other rays will come along when they feed and they're quite dainty the smaller rays can be quite um very cautious so they'll come and feed and then just disappear off and porcupine rays um and this is corroborated by um uh, uh information from um some aboriginal hunters uh, you just look for the cloud of dust because they're the bikers they don't care right they don't care who's watching they're just plowing through the sand like a bulldozer <laughs> Um, and you know, they're behaviorally very, very different. So you bring up the aboriginals and their knowledge of just looking for the cloud of dust. And it's something I definitely wanted to chat with you about today. Your mm -hmm. citizen science work doesn't just expand to people that are going out on tours and boats and that have access to the water, but you also work with the local indigenous communities. So could you explain a little bit about what you do with the communities and what that looks like and how they're, how they're contributing to science and how science is kind of shaping a little bit about where they are? Mm -hmm. 
That's a great question. So I would, to be honest, I would put working with traditional owners. Um, so, you know, First Nations people, Indigenous people in a different bucket of citizen science. Right. Um, and it's because they're not, you know, a, a tourist to an area passing through. Mm-hmm. This is a place where they have lived, you know, all of their lives, potentially. They've got uh, family connections and they've got a oral history and knowledge base that goes back through thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I would the, the term that we would use here is uh, traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous knowledge. Okay. Um, and that is really, really powerful. It can be really, really powerful. So, you know, we, we've got some fisheries projects going with uh, a group called the Yukubaja Muluku group, which are up in Cape York, near a mm-hmm. town called Cooktown, and their traditional lands are um, uh, around uh, this place called Archer Point and the Annan River. So we've actually just started doing some fish monitoring with this group. Um, um, we've had a long, um, you know, we've, we've been working with this group for several years. Um, I'm a shark guy. Somehow I ended up working on freshwater mussels. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm a fishery scientist, right? And it was this thing where we, we had a shark and ray project that we were working on them, you know, uh, with them. Um, and they've got some interesting things happening in their country that um, unfortunately I can't share at the moment. But during that process, one of the things they said was like, we've got this problem with these freshwater mussels and the freshwater mussels are really important to us. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm looking at, but this is obviously really important. So let's, let's put a project together and I'll see if I can find a mussel specialist, like bring in a ringer who actually knows what they're looking at. Um, and that was actually turned out to be one of my favorite projects. I learned an awful lot. Um, we gave them some really important information that they've since used to help manage the river. And, you know, that I think that was really important in building trust with this community. Mm. I was a shark guy, interested in sharks and the ocean, um, but was willing to work with them on problem that they wanted someone to look at which was muscles in fresh water both of which were completely outside of my expertise <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah you know those those uh, that was a great project because they owned the question um we collaborated together very closely on how the project would run you know what methods we'd use uh, it was very clear what our involvement would be, um, who owned the intellectual property, you know, um, who would be able to speak in public about the project, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, that's just communication and respect mm-hmm. and, and acknowledging that, you know, here you're working on their country. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So how, how did that come about? That actually came about through our links with the Marine Park Authority. Okay. Um, so, um, the Marine Park Authority has a program of working with indigenous rangers and through that, through that program, you know, it's a small town, it's a small Mm -hmm. world. We all know each other. Um, Word got around and we were like, there could be some really interesting sharks up in these waters. (laughs) Um, And they had the capacity. They've actually got amazing capacity, very hardworking people, 
very well equipped, um, very well trained. Um, it's like we could, we could make this work. Um, so yeah, there was a conversation that was brokered through the Marine Park Authority, and you know they put us together, and um, off we went. Amazing. So they came to you with a problem, and you were able to kind of get, provide them some sort of solution. Were the, yeah. were the muscles just kind of disappearing? Was that the issue? Yeah. So their their problem was um, they noticed that the muscle beds um, were dying. Like they were getting lots and lots of dead muscles, and when they went out to harvest, there weren't a lot nowhere near the number of muscles that they remember. And, you know, um, they had particular harvesting beds that had been used for generations across thousands of years. So something was changing. Um, so, um, you know, our job was firstly to document the muscle beds and map them, um, actually figure out what species they were. So we had to basically use DNA uh, analysis to figure out the species and then compare sort of control and impact sites um, and the impact they thought might be causing disrupting things was um, there was dredging for sand upriver from one of the sites where they'd seen a lot of muscle death um, so what we were able to do was show that there were massive differences in the abundance and density of muscles between the sites downstream from the dredging site and control sites further downstream um, and, you know, I think they were able to use that information. They provided it to the National Park Service. Um, they um, use that uh, within their own community to let people know what's going on. And um, my understanding is that the dredging has actually changed. Mm. Um, so now we're still monitoring muscles and we're, we're seeing if the population is going to come back. I love a good comeback story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are talking about sharks and end up talking about muscles. <laughs> Shellfish are important. <laughs> they are. They are. And I, I think this is one thing for the listeners as well. Like, um, you know, if, if, if you have your heart set on becoming a dolphin researcher or a seabird researcher or a sponge or, or whatever it is, you know, science, science is about the process of inquiry. Mm -hmm. it, it's not about being the world expert in this one particular thing. Mm -hmm. And if you have the experience in knowing how to collate collect data, how to analyze it, and, and that experience in the scientific process. I think you are doing yourself, and this is my personal opinion, okay, Cara, this is my personal opinion. I, th I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you just focus on one single thing. Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, how much do you need to know about that one particular species? Like, mm -hmm. wouldn't you get bored eventually? And there, there, I think there's a risk of becoming tunnel, uh, getting tunnel vision. Um, science is moving so quickly, and there's so many different ideas, and so many, so much technology. I, I think if you focus down on one particular thing or one particular field, you're missing opportunities to learn, and then use that knowledge you've learned um, to better your understanding of the one thing you are most passionate about. That's, that's just my two cents. I agree. I think that it's, it can be a slippery slope pigeonholing yourself down into one topic and it's always good to kind of, to branch out, um, and to learn more and it helps you grow as a person. It helps you grow as a scientist and yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> that actually leads us 
again, really nicely, you teach a workshop called the business of science. Um, and you kind of dig a little bit more into the career side of marine biology. So would you tell us a little bit about your workshop and some some uh, lessons that you teach that <laughs> hit a little bit closer to home for yeah. your audience? Yeah, so this is um, uh, a colleague of mine, Ian McLeod, also at James Cook Uni. Mm -hmm. um, he and I both came from, I guess, outside of academia, back into academia, right? Ian used to work. Uh, he's got his own filming business and, um, you know, like I said, you know, I worked for 10 years for the Marine Park Authority. So, you know, I sat on the other side of the desk of interview panels from JCU graduates who were trying to get jobs. And, you know, just over the years of just like looking at that experience and just thinking we were seriously missing some things here. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I started working at James Cook Uni, um, I met Ian, we had some conversations. We just started, you know what? There's a whole range of skills that science graduates have. They're not, they're not capitalizing on. They're, they're not taking the opportunities that they can have to help themselves in the job market. So this is where Ian and I came up with this idea of the business of science workshop. Um, and it was to explain really to students, like, this is how science actually works. This is how to get funding. This is how to get a job. This is how to present yourself. Um, so the workshop covers off everything from sort of, um, you know, uh, publications and why you need to publish, what types of funding you have, what types of jobs you have in science, um, how to present yourself. Um, so. I guess some of the key lessons I've learned, and you know, some of your other guests on um, this podcast have, have said the same thing. Soft skills are hugely important. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you're in uh, working in a university in an academic environment, you're gonna have to deal with people. Like the days of you being able to closet yourself in some basement, working with your beloved specimens by yourself, um, those days are probably over. <laughs> mm -hmm. You have to interact. Um, and the soft skills by which, you know, things like being able to organize a project, being able to organize yourself, project management, budget management, um, being able to communicate your science, solve conflicts, engage with stakeholders. Um, all of those, what we call soft skills, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see right now. <laughs> um, frankly, uh, in my opinion, to get ahead in your career uh, are way more important than your ability to code, to do a complex life history model for this, you know, um, and drum, this fish species. Mm -hmm. um, because, and, and this is one of the other truths that we sort of bring out, um, is most graduates from a PhD or masters are not going to be going into academia. Um, you know, we were talking earlier before, I've actually got the stats in front of me here now. So this is from the scientific century, securing our future prosperity by the Royal Society, right? Um, of the PhD graduates, only 3.5% end up as permanent research staff and 0.45% end up as tenured professors, right? That's half of 1%. Um, the rest, it doesn't mean that the rest have failed, 
and this is a really dangerous this is also something we talk about in this narrative like mm-hmm. uh in this workshop there's this narrative that if you don't become a tenured professor somehow you've failed that's that's garbage it's rubbish you uh-huh. have come out of your advanced training with all of this knowledge and these soft skills and most people the the vast majority end up in other careers um scientific careers in um perhaps research institutes or government agencies and a whole bunch of them you know over half end up in careers outside science and that's absolutely fine you know you're not a failure if you don't end up as a tenured you (laughs) you have not failed if you do not become your supervisor (laughs) so i guess that's one of the other key lessons uh you know we, we try and get across in this workshop um there's a whole range of scientific careers out there. There really is. It's kind of, I mean, I focus on the ocean careers for the most part, but, or for all of the part, but there really is a whole range, even just within the marine science field, the range of careers is astounding. And then if you branch, if you take the marine part off and just focus on science careers, the options are almost limitless. So it's definitely something mm-hmm. to take away, you know, tenured teaching and professors are wonderful, but it's not, it's not the only option. Um, and I think people get stuck with the, it's, with the idea in their head that they'll be a professor and they'll have their own lab and they'll do their own research and don't understand that there's just so many different possibilities out there. And maybe that's something that you can do for a period of time and, and then you mm-hmm. do something else. Uh, or you do mm-hmm. something else like you did and then go to the professor mm-hmm. track. So what actually made you make the switch? Um, <laughs> like I said, I was always passionate about sharks, even when the Marine working in the Marine Park Authority, wherever I could get involved with sharks, I did. Um, and then um, my ex-boss, ex-supervisor, uh, uh, Professor Colin Simpendorfer is one of the top shark researchers in the world. Uh, he came to JCU uh, and um, basically took over the lab that I'm um, uh, running now. Hmm. And he, I'd met him previously in Florida. I had a, a fellowship to go and learn about shark converse, conservation. Um, and yeah, he had some openings for PhD students. So uh, I took a risk. I quit my permanent, you know, secure government job um, to go back to living on a scholarship just above the poverty line um, <laughs> with no security, no certainty of a job at the end um, to do a PhD. So it was a big risk. Um, mm. No regrets. Yeah. I mean, it definitely worked out for you. You've done some incredible research. Yeah, and it's, it's it's life experience, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to do stuff in this job that other people only see on TV. Absolutely. So we touched on this a little bit, but what what do you think has made you so successful? I mean, you've kind you've that's a heck of a statistic that you just threw out, and you and you made it right. You're that part of that like hundred <laughs> percent. So what well, do you think let's is? De- <laughs> let's define success, and I, you know, um, firstly, so fair enough. <laughs> You get to do the research you want, right? <laughs> yes. And, but, you know, I'm still on six, you know, my job is by no means secure. Um, I'm mm. still on six month contracts at the moment. Um, hopefully that'll change sometime in the near future, but that's by no means assured. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have a, um, 
a backup job. I actually work with a team that trains uh, army pilots how to escape from sinking helicopters, and, that, and that's a backup job. Um, so success. <laughs> that's a really I, I the, that's a really off the wall backup job. Well, I mean, they they needed experienced divers, um, and uh, yeah, that's how I sort of got involved with that. Um, and it's a lot of fun, actually. It's 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 actually nice to step outside the academia walls of academia every now and then. Um, but you know, how do you become successful? I think the first part of that is knowing what how you define success, and everyone's definition for success is going to be different. Um, yeah, for some, it's going to be you know, tenure professor track, have a um, uh, hundred papers, uh, have you know a thousand citations, whatever it is. And that's fine, um, but you just have to know what works for you. Other people's version of success might be, I'm living in uh, a Pacific tropical island, drinking coconuts every morning. Um, I'm living below the poverty line, but you know, I'm living in a community and we're doing stuff and making change in the world and I'm super happy. Um, mm -hmm. Good, you know? Just uh, know what success means for you. Um, how do I think you get success? Like I said, knowing what success means and then just sticking with it, um, having some faith um, and taking control of your own destiny. I mean, life is unpredictable and varied and stuff's going to happen. But if you're, I truly believe that if you're persistent and you have a direction and you keep moving in that direction, eventually, you will good things will happen for you but you mm -hmm. got to know where you're going and then you have to take those steps absolutely is that very <laughs> that's very touchy-feely and esoteric no but it's it's true and that's kind of it's what i try to tell people because i want to be a marine biologist okay but what do you want to do Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay, we'll get some experience and figure out what that looks mm -hmm. like for you. Because nobody can tell you, right? Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing. What does success look like for you? Yeah. And what when is... I've been working with students, so one of the things I ask them to think about is to try and break it down. Like, you know, what does success look like for you? It can be a really big question. Um, mm -hmm. So I ask people to think about like, okay, well, where do you want to live? If you hate the cold weather, don't move don't, don't go and study seals and penguins in the Antarctic. Okay. Don't do that. So where do you actually want to live? How do you want to live? Do you want to live in a uh, really swanky apartment in New York, in which case marine biology is not for you? Um, you know, how do you want to live? Uh, who do you want to work with? Do you want to work with a big team or a small team? Are there people you already know who you want to work with? Um, so, you know, the where, the how, the who, and then what, what do you want to do in your uh, work life? Like, is it penguins, seabirds? That's going to dictate where you go. Um, but also, what do you want to do in your personal life, in your recreational life? If, if your life, again, is if you love gardening and gardening is part of your soul and what you need to do to be happy, don't take a job studying penguins in Antarctica. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you have to look at these multiple facets and that that can help define what makes you happy and what success looks like.
Absolutely. That's great advice. What would be a dream project that you would want to begin right now if funds weren't an obstacle? Oh, okay. Um, so I'm a shark researcher, right? <laughs> um, there is a fish. Called, have you heard of an archer fish, Cara? Archer fish? Yeah. No. Okay. So these are really, really cool fish. They've okay. got, so they live in brackish water and also up in estuaries. And what they do is they take water into their mouth and okay. their mouths are actually rifled. Like they've got these ridges and they actually will learn to find insects on branches or leaves outside of the water. They'll spit like an arrow of water out of their mouth and knock the insect <sighs> off and then go and eat them. So I have are, seen these guys. Yeah, they are really, really cool fish. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah, they they are amazing. So we, we have them here and, and um, um, with the Yukabaja Muluku people. Um, archerfish uh, are quite important to some of the elders. So I'd love to work with them on an archerfish project, um, uh, looking at do the fishes at the bottom reaches of the river and estuary, are they part of the same population? Um, what's the age and growth? Um, even what species do they have in the river? Like, um, you know, some of this basic understanding, and you know, then what does that actually mean for people who want to harvest archerfish? Is there a particular time of the year when they shouldn't? Um, mm -hmm. So that's one. Um, there's another project called, um, completely different project. This is purely <laughs> scientific interest. Uh, there's a, a, a beautiful eagle ray called the ornate eagle ray. Mm. And it is just, it's the largest of the eagle rays. If you go and look, look up images on Google, they are amazingly stunning animals. I've never seen one alive um, uh, in the wild. And from citizen science, you know, from the uh, Marine Park Authority sightings network, and um, they've got a program called Master Reef Guides, which are like the top gun of the reef guides. Um, mm. And I've worked with some of these folks and, and, and I've got photos now. I, I know that there are, there's a place called Lady Elliot Island where these eagle rays uh, are more reliably found and they're extremely rare. We don't know anything about them. Um, so yeah, I want to get a project where we can train up the tourism staff down there um, to actually put tags on the animals so we can figure out where they're moving. Like, what are they doing? Like, and if we figure out where they move, we can understand their risk profiles. I mean, these things are endangered animals now. Um, mm. You know, figuring out where they move tells you what risks they're exposed to. And then you can start looking at management. Um, so that would be another dream project. Um, and then anywhere in Southeast Asia or the Pacific, working with communities on fish or sharks or shark fin or whatever it is um, so that we can find this balance between livelihoods and sustainability so that communities can continue to live, mm -hmm. but they are aware of what it takes to harvest the sea sustainably. So you asked for one project, I gave you three. <laughs> yeah, those are great projects. So I have seen the archer fish. They have them at the Baltimore Aquarium. You started describing them. I'm like, I've seen a fish that does this. Mm -hmm. I just forgot its name. I really love the, I mean, the the eagle ray is beautiful. I had to look it up and it is, It's. I mean, eagle rays are stunning anyway, but this one definitely takes the cake. Yeah, it really is beautiful. 
And I think that you bring up, a, I mean, you work with the indigenous communities in Australia. I think you really bring up a great point with kind of making harmony with the local communities that rely on the ocean for sustenance and educating them and bringing them, having their knowledge brought up to more scientific or conservation standards so that they understand how to manage their fisheries for future generations as well. So Mm -hmm. I love, it's super important. It's something that it's being worked on globally, just on small scales and it's important work for sure. Yeah. Wonderful. A couple more questions as we wrap up here. What -hmm. is your favorite field story or stories to tell? You told one Uh of told a hammerhead one earlier. <laughs> okay. I know you've probably spent a ton of time out in the field, uh, but yep. if there's like, you know, a story that kind of sticks out and you're like, hold on, let me grab a beer. We'll sit down, yep. tell you the story. Oh, okay. So I'm sifting through my memory banks. Um, <laughs> um, there's, there's two things that, two that jump out onto my mind. So um, I was doing coral reef surveys um, on some of the inshore reefs in the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, they can be quite murky. Um, Is this part of your work at in the Marine Park Authority? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you know, I was on a dive. Um, I was, you know, you put out a, a transect tape, and the person in front of you has got the slate, and they're counting fish, whatever it is. And I had the video camera, and I'm um, swimming along behind Jess, and Jess doesn't like sharks very much, <laughs> and um, I remember something caught my eye in the murky water to the left and I looked over and I just saw this big shadow and I was like oh that's big (laughs) Uh, and then I kept as we did this transect I kept seeing this shadow just hover on the edge of visibility anyway finished the transect I'd rolled up the tape I was just rolling up the last couple of meters and Jess was at the end of the tape rolled up the tape and I looked up at Jess and it was one of those cartoon moments. You know, you say people's <laughs> eyes get as big as saucers. <laughs> Jess's eyes were the size of like dinner plates. And there was just stream of bubbles coming out of her regulator. And she's shaking her hands at me, like in panic. And I'm like, oh, and at that split moment, something grabbed my fin, like with a powerful jerk. Oh my god! And gosh. started pulling me down the reef. And I was like, like you know this they say that your life flashes across your you know before your eyes right that didn't happen to me (laughs) i just had this literally i had this thought well it's been a good run (laughs) like you know and i i really take great i'm really that's really comforting like you know i thought that was it and to have that thought was actually, I think, really validating that, you know, I've made some good choices in my life. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so I start getting dragged down and I turn around and I'm fully expecting to see this tiger shark working its way up my leg. (laughs) And it's not, okay? It's a stupid nurse shark. (laughs) And that's why you don't like nurse sharks. (laughs) That's, well, it's it's one of the reasons. I mean, it was, and as soon as I saw it was a nurse shark, it was like, oh, this is fine. It's just a puppy dog. Nurse sharks are puppies. And I think he just got um, super curious. I had these bright uh, green fins, which I still have, by the way. Um, my fins are older than some of my students. That's pretty funny. Um, but um, I think he just got curious and he just grabbed them and he was like chewing them and, and trying to... And and as soon as I saw it was a nurse shark, I just started kicking him with my other leg and he let go. Um, <laughs> 
uh, and then I was just like, ah, oh, you idiot nurse shark, you silly dog. Um, <laughs> That's really and- funny because usually they either they swim away from you or they just don't care about you and keep going on their own. Do their own I don't thing. know. I mean, nurse sharks, I think, are pretty, they're just like, they're like Labradors of the shark world. Okay. They're just <laughs> these big, dopey, oh, look, let's go play um, <laughs> sort of animals. Um, the reason, actually, the reason I don't like them is when you've, when you when you've accidentally caught some, um, they sit on because they can buckle breathe, right? Um, they can just sit there and motionless um, mm, move right. water over their gilt. So it's not like other sharks that tire out. They get hooked. They sit there on the bottom of the drum line and just go, "All right, what's going to happen?" <laughs> right? Then they get hauled up. So they're full of energy, and they mm. roll. They roll. They roll like crocodiles. They just roll and they roll and they roll. And they don't, their fins are so soft and their tail is so pliable. It's really, really hard to get ropes around them and to handle them. And then they spit water at you as well. So <laughs> handling nurse sharks, just, just, I don't know. It's like Labradors. I mean, I love Labradors. And if I'm truly honest, nurse sharks are okay, but <laughs> I'd be quite, I'd be quite happy if I never caught one again. Um, so, so that was pretty I, funny. I like I like the insult to injury, and then they spit water on you, <laughs> and then they spit water on you. Um, <laughs> the the other one that strikes me is um, uh, a good friend of mine, Peter Kine, uh, who's actually a program officer for the IUCN Shark Specialist Group. Um, he was on this porcupine ray trip with me, and we were trying to grab this this porcupine right we'd actually got one and it was too big to fit in the nets that we had so we were trying we, you know there's a saying right if we knew what we were doing it wouldn't be called research right? <laughs> that's true okay sometimes you just have to try stuff and pete and i both handled lots of animals and you know lots of sharks and rays in the past and it's not like you know porcupine rays don't have uh, venomous spines so you know they might suck on you but really you know you're in a wetsuit you're fine There's... so pete had the tail and i had the head and we're literally both of us trying to lift this animal up off the sand and it was like a suction cup um and there was no way it, it just was not budging so i let go and pete had kept a hold on it and it decided to take off and pete is one tenacious little guy and he just held on and all i remember is this blur of sand underwater because i you know it was underwater we had our masks on and i'd see porcupine ray peep porcupine ray peep porcupine ray peep (laughs) sort of disappearing and reappearing out of this cloud of sand and then it took off with pete essentially still holding onto its tail riding it like like aquaman uh and then of course pete let go (laughs) but that was funny i'll never forget that like something out of a cartoon it really is like aquaman that's hilarious yeah yeah that was great (laughs) oh those are fantastic stories thank you for sharing (laughs) yeah Yeah. see this is the stuff that you know um well this is kind of the unexpected stuff that you remember that makes this career so wonderful in spite of all its challenges um it's true yeah it's it's, the moments that you're like and that and i got paid to do that that day that was part of my job (laughs) yeah yeah and when it's 30 knots and the ship is rolling and you're wedged into your bunk with pillows and you're trying not to throw up it's remembering those times that (laughs) it's like yeah that's why i'm doing this 
Oh, actually, more realistically, when you're buried in paperwork in your desk between permits, animal ethics, funding applications, student reports. Yeah. <laughs> you got yes. to remember the good times. You got to remember your field days and be like, it was, that was fun. It's worth Hell it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So I like to end each episode with a conservation ask. Mm-hmm. What would you like the audience to go forth and do? Oh, I'm going to try it out. I'm going to try it out a cliche here, um, but I right. firmly believe this is true. Um, Think globally, act locally. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about two things in particular, climate change and seafood sustainability. Mm. Um, climate change is, in my opinion, the biggest threat we have to the world's oceans. Well, to, to the planet, actually. And we can all do things. And I know there's so many people who will say, well, it's the big polluters. It's the blah, 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 blah. You know, there's all these other things that we sh- other people should be doing. That's not untrue, but it is also untrue to say that not every single person has the part to play. Turn off a light that's not up, right? Switch to low energy bulbs. If you have the option to get solar power, get solar power. Like it saves you money. Um, um, You know, think about your food choices. Some foods are way more greenhouse intensive and polluting than others. So how you live your everyday life um, you know, irrespective of what companies or big industry does, you, if you personally believe that you want to do right by the oceans and the environment, make some choices to reduce your climate impact, forget what everyone else is doing. You do your bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's one thing I would say. So, you know, watch your food choices, know what you eat. And that segues into your seafood. Um, and what I always say with your seafood is, um, if you're having seafood, you should know what you're eating, where it came from and how it was caught. Mm-hmm. And with those three bits of information, you can make a judgment, uh, an informed choice uh, call about its sustainability. Um, and one thing that, one thing that infuriates me, Kara, infuriates me is this narrative of we, you know, we, we are not going to support this fishery or buy from this fishery because you know, we don't agree with, you know, there are some of these things that the way the fishery works or something like that, when there is actual science to say that that fishery is sustainable. Because um, mm. what that happens is if we don't, if we don't have sustainable fisheries, right in our own backyards what society as a whole does is it exports their environmental footprint to the people who are least able to manage and for us in australia it means getting our seafood imported from thailand or vietnam or indonesia or places where the environmental management systems are nowhere near as good as ours so we close Mm -hmm. our eyes and we export our environmental footprint to the developing world where we don't have to see it. And I think that's morally bankrupt. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting on a rant, rant here. No, it's it's true. And it's something that uh, isn't talked about a lot. No. Um, is yeah. not just the impact on the oceans, but the impact on people globally yeah. on our cho- with our choices. So, you know, know what, if, if you're eating seafood, know what it is, 
where it came from and how it was caught and make a judgment call. Um, and, you know, where you can buy local. Yep. So do you eat seafood? Buy sustainable local. Mm. <laughs> I do eat seafood. There's actually a wonderful uh, local fish and chip shop, uh, seafood shop here. Believe it or not. And we're talking about career progression, right? So these are two fishery scientists who work in our lab. And, you know, we do a lot of work with seafood industry, with the seafood, uh, commercial fishes. Um, they left research and have opened their own sustainable seafood business. So they go and catch their own stuff now using sustainable techniques. They buy seafood from sustainable suppliers that are MSC certified or people that they personally know mm -hmm. who are working in a sustainable responsible way that's the seafood they sell and that's the seafood i go i buy from them <laughs> but yeah you know they're ex fisheries scientists one's a fisheries biologist one's a social scientist uh they're a married couple called andy and renee they run tobin's fish tales because every fish has a story <laughs> um, and you go into their shop and they've got information on seafood species and fisheries techniques and sustainability and you know that the stuff in their shop has been passed by them. And yeah, so I do eat seafood, but I get it from Tobin's. I really like, you know, they, they wanted to be the change that, that they wanted in the world, right? Yeah. So yeah. they didn't yeah. find a sustainable option and they created one. And they have lots of knowledge and scientific know-how to back it up. So that's really cool. Yeah. Well, this was a really great chat. If the audience wants to connect with you or your research, where's the best place to find you? Uh, if you just Google Andrew Chen, James Cook University, or Andrew Chen Shark, there's stuff that will come up. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, it, it's true. Um, otherwise, my Instagram handle is at SpinnerShark7. Um, and um, yeah, that's probably one of the best ways to see what we're doing. Um, our lab website is www.fish and fisheries.com and our new lab site should be up by then Very cool. um, and you can yeah see who we are and what we do awesome and i'll put a link to all of that in the show notes i do have a question i wanted to ask you why spinner sharks uh again this is one of the species that i thought was super super interesting um and i hardly ever see oh <laughs> so, you gotta come yeah, here yeah. then so, in the winter time yeah. I mean, so you know where they get their name from, right? Yes. So spinner sharks yeah, jump yeah. up out of the water and spin. And it's amazing. They're like a spinning mm -hmm. top. It's incredible to watch. And we have them. They yep. migrate here. And we have them by the hundreds, if not thousands, in the wintertime. And it's oh, incredible really? to watch. Yeah. Awesome. So you got to come here. I've seen <laughs> I've seen some surfing videos of like spinner sharks jumping over sup boards. And yeah. Yeah. It looks very, very cool. We have them here, but they're... Um, yeah, not that common. Okay. I haven't seen a lot. Anyway, good to know, Cara. Good to know. So so spinner sharks is just one of the other goals that to study. Yeah. <laughs> I, look, I mean, there's 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 a um there's a Sean Connery James Bond movie where he's pretending to be a marine biologist. <laughs> Funnily enough, of course, that's my favorite Bond movie. <laughs> and you know, there's this line where someone goes are you on holiday, Mr. Bond? And Sean Connery turns around and, you know, brace yourself for a terrible Sean Connery impersonation. Whatever there's an ocean, a marine biologist is never on holiday. 
and <laughs> um oh that's true there's never going to i'm never going to run out of stuff to study cara um you know there's holiday time whatever if there's water near there i'm going to be drawn to it um yeah spinach sharks are one uh, and even if i did that i'm sure that well, there is there's other stuff there's so much mm -hmm. there's so much we're still finding new species so you know yeah we're never going to run out it's awesome thank you for sharing that it's true it's true <laughs> though i i mean i live live at the ocean and marine biologist and i still go down you know go on vacation and I'm drawn to the water and I'm curious what's there and want to know more. So it's absolutely true. James Bond quote. <laughs> <laughs> Surely I'm not the first on your show to come up with a James Bond quote. I think you might be. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay. Well, that, that might make my day. I'll put that on my seat. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, Angie, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really great chatting with you. No, no problem. Thanks, Cara. It was, yeah, it was a really nice opportunity. Thank you. Hey, listeners. I had so much fun chatting with Andrew that we didn't get to cover nearly everything that I wanted to. One of the topics is Andrew's Shark Search Project. It's an effort to catalog shark and ray photographs from divers across the Indo-Pacific region to help build accurate and verified shark and ray species catalogs or species checklists, whichever you prefer, for every country and territory. They have over two dozen countries and counting. Check out sharksearchindopacific.org for more information and to see photographs of some of the amazing creatures that call the Indo-Pacific home. I will put a link to this and everything we chatted today in the show notes over at marinebio.life slash 35. Marinebio.life slash 35. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. <laughs>